This is Kale Sharman, the writer, producer, and host of the Maple Family Treehouse. And you are listening to the From Paper to People podcast. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to episode 402 of From Paper to People, genealogy's answer to the eternal question, what's your story? My name is Carolyn Neelachlan, and I am your hostess with the mostest. This is a very exciting episode for me. As I stated in the promo a little over a week ago, I had the extreme honor of talking with Michael Twitty, a cultural and culinary historian whose masterwork, The Cooking Gene, has helped raise the consciousness of a nation to issues of blackness, whiteness, southernness, Americanness, and so much more. We talked for so long that I am bringing you this conversation in two parts. In this episode, we go around the world and back again, but if I have to boil down the discussion, I'd say it's about how small the world is, how blackness and whiteness are both absolutely different and historically intertwined, and how we can all work together to recognize the giant family we're a part of. It may sound a bit idealistic, but work with me here. Michael defies categories and descriptions. Half the fun of the interview was seeing where it would go, only to have it come home again to the same basic points. Michael's Southern Discomfort Tour was a confrontation of a truth that many researchers and most DNA companies don't go far enough to serve. Fear gets us nowhere, and that when all is said and done, the more we know, the more we realize that we know nothing and that we have to start all over again. This was probably a really bad intro. (laughs) But listen, anyway, I'll let Michael speak for himself. Here now is part one of the interview. Hey, everybody. I cannot believe that I am saying this, but I have the ultimate guest. I am so excited. This is someone I've wanted to talk with for a couple of years now, and I've been pestering him in his DMs on Twitter for at least a year. Um, We finally put it together. And so... I have with me the two-time James Beard award-winning author of The Cooking Gene, Michael Twitty. Michael, thank you so much for coming and being here with me today. Thank you, Carolyn. I really appreciate you. Um, You know, I've been thinking and thinking about what it is that that we should talk about and how to approach this. I think the number one thing I want to say to people who haven't read the book yet, and if you haven't read it yet, shame on you. Um, (laughs) Go buy one and buy it new. Don't buy it used. Um, Thank you. But the, <laughs> but the first thing that I want to say is the cooking gene is not a cookbook. Right. Okay. That is the most important thing that you need to know. Yes, it won James Beard Awards. That is important, but it is not a cookbook. It is a book about an entire picture of a life and the lives that led into that life mm. and the importance of what that feed is about, that ancestral feed. And so I'm here to ask you about that today, Michael. The things that people like to talk about are, how many recipes are in the book? Oh, maybe 20 and odd. See, now, okay, that is not the bulk of the book. So 
What I want to hear about is the importance of what you call the Southern Discomfort Tour and Mm -hmm. the genealogical, the ancestral, the genetic, all of that stuff that has gotten so much publicity, especially since at-home DNA tests have become so popular. And then, of course, certain DNA companies have cut back and cut back and cut back on the availability of matches, which has done the Black community an incredible disservice, as well as adoptees and, and people of uncertain parentage. So they're solving problems, but they're also creating problems. Right. And I'd love for you to just tell us, just talk, talk to us okay. about that. Okay. What is it that's hitting you about that? What is it, what is it that you're feeling about that these days? I really have an issue with the the pie charts because the pie charts are all too often taken as the gospel truth and the pie charts are a tool. Mm-hmm. But especially with ancestry, I hate to say this, but you know, I did I did reach out to them in, you know, when the cooking gene was just kind of like doing its thing. And I really wanted them to be more of a partner and kind of tell a story. And the problem is is that there was kind of a reticence. So when I so you know you know when in Black American you watch these commercials right and it's like I thought we were Portuguese I thought we were Hungarian <laughs> I used to wear a kilt now I need to wear a dirndl I mean <laughs> you know you know all that kind of nonsense you know you're telling your customers if you're European American the gates are open to you mm-hmm. um, yeah there's some Black folks who really haven't delved in gene but we're a very genealogical research culture I mean ever since the '70s since roots we've been a, part, a big part of the genealogical research community. You know, my uncle, Stephen Townsend, who I don't really associate with, did a quite a bit of that at OGS, African American Genealogical Historical Society, did the newsletter for many years. Mm-hmm. And then there's like tons of other. I mean, th- these are strong, strong, strong genealogical clubs. And here's the problem. I could tell you that the initial charts that I got, which were sort of primitive, did have did reveal a lot for me and actually think a lot of things panned out then mm-hmm. they started changing those charts and then i was just like you know what you know these are about as good as the wheel of fortune <laughs> and, been around. and then i started finding people who were matches and it's great because i was testing as many people that i could mm-hmm. on both lines and then therefore things you know then you use jed match use other tools you use 23 and me other tools and things start you know patterns start to emerge among all these different services. And then, you, and of course, for me, the biggest thing I tell people, particularly those who are looking, African-Americans, who are looking for their uh, genetic and genealogical roots through these tests is context, context, context. You know, you got to know about the history of the trade, who went where, how many people went. And I keep telling people that from the, from the vantage point of historians of slavery and the slave trade, these numbers have only gotten better and better and better since the establishment of the transatlantic slave trade database. Mm -hmm. And if you know that and you're incorporating that into the way that you do your research, then it becomes very, very salient. So by, by kind of dropping the more distant matches and by dropping other elements, it's really not a service for black folks no more. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, you know, you know what people are looking for. You know what people have been looking for. You you know, you know that 
people want their Kunta Kinte. And we're not stopping that process either. I mean, we're doing what we got to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just the, the, the plain truth is, is that I wish they would o- reopen it up or find a way or do it, have a specialist group, a, a board of directors to a separate project on their site to keep this going. I mean, there's also, Carolyn, the war between between tests. You have family tree DNA, you have my heritage, you have ancestry, you have 23andMe, you have African ancestry, all of which have very serious limitations. Mm-hmm. And I think that we as an, as an ethnic bloc would actually pay and invest for them to get over their stuff and work together and figure something out that's helpful. Of course, again, with the assistance of historians and sociologists, recently I was reading, I had to put it down because I got kind of angry, but there's a <laughs> book about, I think it was called The Fatal, Fatal Embrace or something. I don't know. It was about, and it, it referenced DNA, the DNA testing as reinforcing you know, antiquated notions of race and it criticized testing for African ethnicity and other things. And I'm just like, you know what? Read the damn room. And this is by an African-American author. I think she's a sociologist, a scientist. And I just thought to myself, you know, no, no, no. I, I, this has been a part of me since I came into the world. I came to the world with Haley's Comet, Alex Haley's Comet. Mm-hmm. And I know there's some listeners who are going, well, his research was on... Read, again, read the room. The dream and the vision that Alex Haley put into the American psyche, but especially to other Black Americans led to DagonAncestry.com. Mm-hmm. It led to 23andMe. It led to African Ancestry. It led to millions of Black people in the diaspora wanting to know and connect with Africa, which has meant millions of dollars in tourism, millions of dollars in travel, millions of dollars in research and people in, acad- in academic departments. So everybody out there who knocks Alex Haley, cut it out. The man's not here to defend himself. You know, it's even true that it electrified European descended America. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we both have the book Finding Your Roots on our shelves mm-hmm. from the 70s. That was one of the first popular, you know, um, genealogical texts. Very, you know, very basic for the time. But I mean, everybody wanted to want to go back to Poland, want to go back to China, want to go back to Africa, go back to Ireland, wherever, because of that vision. And I just think that right now we've also wasted the 400th anniversary of the arrival of Africans in British North America was completely trashed. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to wrap my heads around all this stuff and, and run my head around your heads, head around all this <laughs> stuff and write about it. But as you well know, the political and cultural climate is, is so rife right now. It's really hard to focus. It's really hard to sleep. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to really get into these things. The year before last, we had an opportunity to honor and reclaim a part of our collective history. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen the way it should have happened. And if I may go there one more tangent before we really get to into our real stuff, then we're, we're like, we're going in circles. I remember the 1619 project came out. And I, while I was pleased with their success, I have to say that it just did not work as a as for me as a proper credit to this anniversary. And I'll tell you why really quickly. In 1619, you had not just Africans, but Angolans, many of whom were what the late scholar Ira Berlin called Atlantic Creoles. Mm-hmm. At Portuguese names, they were baptized Catholics. 
And some of them were genotypically, phenotypically mixed. Mm-hmm. And the 1619 project in the New York Times shifted the focus to the generic story of American slavery and the heart of American slavery where it becomes the cash cow of America. Mm-hmm. When in reality, I think a better focus would have been, I'm not the creator so creator or creators, but the better focus would have been talking about the year 1619 itself and who came over because those people saw their freedom and their humanity vanquished within two, two generations, two to three generations. And that's an incredible story to tell that people need to know about because basically the idea is that, oh no, we actually came to this country and there was this ambiguous status and there was for a short time we were equal with everybody else. Then it was all taken away. That's, that's a heartbreaking and compelling narrative that was totally left out. And again, context, context, context. People should know the background story. They need to know, they need to read the room. They need to know that we we have needs. You know, we had a, we have definitely have some strong psychological, spiritual, genealogical, historical, cultural, and mystical needs that this knowledge can help to heal and resolve. And that's why I do the work that I do. I mean, the food part is a big part of it, but it's not the complete center. I was asked the other day in a quick fire during a Zoom presentation, ancestry or history? And I had to say ancestry because now I understand ancestry to be more than just looking at my veins, looking in the mirror. Mm-hmm. It's deeper. It's all these different pieces that I had to hash out over a very long period of time. And also do it in a way that was responsible and respectful to what we have agreed upon as the modes of scholarship, which are factual and not based on opinion. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense. I, this phrase keeps coming into my head, observing your own diminution. Mm-hmm. The idea that, I mean, my ancestors were in Jamestown in 1619 and before, and they were there for the 1622 massacre. Mm -hmm. And some of them were killed. I have a genealogy group on Facebook for the surname Pace, because I'm a Pace. And I, at first I started the group because it was like, hey, some slightly far-flung cousins who I've never met. There there was a whole bunch of Pace kids in my great-grandmother's generation, and I figure all these descendants, we'll get together, we'll have pictures, right? I'm keeping it small. I'm keeping it simple. It's a manageable thing. And then a bunch of people who were involved in the Pace Society, I think I invited somebody, and they were like, Mm. oh, there are all these people in the Pace Society. Can I invite them? And I said, yeah, you know, sure, why not? I mean, maybe they'll want to share photos and stories, and we'll start to figure it out, too. Let's just say it got ugly. And I was Mm -hmm. kicking people out left, right, and center. I asked a question in the group, and the question was, do any of you use a graphic in Ancestry to mark your enslaving ancestors? Because I do, and this is the one that I do. And it's a a square graphic, and it says enslaver, because I'm a visual person. And I like to look at my tree and see who's the enslaver and who fought in what war and everything like that. And I said, you know, I use it for both spouses in any marriage, because every woman was equally culpable as an enslaver. And Mm -hmm. that is something that we do not pay attention to in our society, right? Because white womanhood gets a pass. And so I just simply asked, do any of you use this? This is what I use. 
And the responses that I got, a couple of people were like, gee, I never thought of that. That's really cool. I'm using that. Totally bootlegged it. And I'm like, yay. Right. A lot of people, one of them was shrieking about, and I do mean shrieking, her Southern heritage. And anybody who says Southern heritage to me, I know what they're saying. Yeah. That is a great big dog whistle. And I started bouncing people and I cut uh, that group went down from something. It was small. It was like a hundred some odd people. And I cut it down by at least 20 people. Every single time somebody showed up with that nonsense, I bounced them. So I incredible. have to admit as a result of that, even though I have 10 Jamestown planters that I know of in my history, some of whom I share with black cousins who are mm -hmm. like family to me. I mean, we talk on the phone and everything like that. We've actually gotten to be close, even though we are super distant in those relationships, you know, on paper. I don't have the nerve right now to look at Jamestown. And that's my privilege in play because I can turn away from that, right? I'm aware of that. Right. I'm not willing to look at that. I'm looking at other parts of my tree right now because I don't want to get involved with the society that could give me the information or anything like that if this is the kind of nonsense that I'm going to get. And that is a part right. of the political climate that we're facing right now. Right. And that is really sad and unfortunate, um, but it is absolutely something that I have had to make an elective choice about in order to not have genealogy drag me down into a place where I don't love genealogy anymore. Right, right. And I think that that's one of the things that I encountered. I was going to write more in the cooking gene about those conversations, but I'll be very honest with you. Those conversations didn't materialize the way I thought that they would. Mm -hmm. People shirked. To hear someone who's like right around, who lives, you know, maybe 15 minutes away from you go, uh, yeah, really, I'm not travel related. I'm, you know, be, being very uncomfortable about it. And I'm not, I'm just, I'm just as a matter of fact, I don't know how we're related. <laughs> okay <laughs> let, me, let me let me let me just let me just put this out there for you <laughs> oh um, i i know how we're related i can show you there's not gonna what well, so one woman said the phrase i have to check your chart you gonna check my what oh you know my gosh. you know no no you get you no let me hey lady hey dude you see these several hundred white people all related to the same person whose name carried down through my family who I can show you, me and about several hundred other of my black are related to. There's no question here. Oh, oh, by the way, my family preserved the story. Mm -hmm. The stories, plural. The family connections. Everybody my grandmother and great-grandmother said was the slaveholder and the father were. And that's not a surprise. And this is something that I want to make clear to listeners who are looking to do some form of reparational work. When I construct trees, I consider myself a technician. I can take information from a person and I can construct a tree for them and give it to them and say, this is what I've got so far and this is your homework. You need to find these kinds of documents and da, 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 da. And then you need to go to these specialists who know more about this. And you also need to interview your family members. And the reason they need to interview their family members is that the folklore is something that I can't get at. I can only get at online records. All I can do is access that from my home, you know, from which is where I'm doing this stuff, right? From my little computer. The important part is accessing the folklore 
And in the black community, that is more important than anywhere else because it is the place that is the currency. That is the currency of history. And that's something that I think a lot of white researchers really don't understand. We have so many records. We have so many records. It's crazy how many records we have. I have records that can prove who my ancestors were in flipping Hungary in the 500s. Okay. That is a recorded genealogy. It is absolutely something I can rely on. My people are in Wikipedia. Then you flip that script and you look at the African research that my cousin Brian does right, on his African-American ancestry, on his enslaved ancestors, and he's got a whole other thing going on where he is relying first and foremost on folklore. He's relying first and foremost on all of that informal history, but it has to be believed and it has to be taken in a way. Mine is color commentary, right? Mm -hmm. His has to be a little bit more like gospel, Right. Yes, things do get disproven. But the fact is that so many things do get proven. And it's because this stuff was important. Right. And you were, you know, part of the reason why in particular, that part of the narrative, the narrative of enslavers, slaveholders who made Black women have children with them, to put it in the most mild sense, which is even hard to do, is that that was in their insurance policy. Mm Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways. Also, the keeping of names from past plantations as a surname. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many different things. For example, I thought to myself, well, these people don't want to, like, confront this. And then I met family who were connected to me through Richard Henry Bellamy, who were living in Texas. And I sort of knew some of their story. But when I met them and I saw, like, their genetic test and connection with mine... It's even though I knew what the, what the deal was, it still blew me away. And then I just wanted to go back to all those white people and go, okay, look, he's black, I'm black, but our common ancestor, his great grandfather, my great 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 grandfather, the same person, and he's related to all of y'all. Mm-hmm. And he's related to all of y'all, especially because he had a very close white marriage, a double first cousin. Ooh. And so that whole, I mean, it wasn't just. The Bellamy's of North Carolina. It was people in New Jersey, Massachusetts. It was, uh, what is the name? Okay, you've got me on this one. <laughs> what is the name of the family? Sarah Palin and Dick Cheney. I have to pull out. Um, let's see. We're going to have to do that research right here because I just need to know about that. John Lathrop. John Lathrop. That's it. John Lathrop. That's it. There you go. I'm the of John Lathrop. And guess what? I went to a presentation in Maine. I met a woman who was white, uh, also converted to Judaism. And she was also a descendant of John Lathrop. Really? Yeah. And you know what? This article, it says that John Lathrop was exiled to the United States from England for being pastor of an illegal independent church. Wow. Spiritual independence. Interesting. Runs in in the blood. Isn't that fascinating when you find these things out? (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's and, and, and I mean, that's something that um, of a billion things we could talk about. That's one of the elements that I've gotten a, got into a lot of muck and mire among black folks. Let's talk black, about that then. Let's yeah, talk about that. Who are not inclined in genealogy. I mean, for as much as the, there are so many of us who are who are really into this. I mean, we mm-hmm. drive a lot of this stuff. We you know, we've already talked about that. We drive a lot of this stuff. 
Then there are those who are just like to to delve into this means I have to go into a past that I'm that I'm ignorant of that I'm not, I'm not comfortable with because I don't know nothing about it. And if I do dig into, it, it's gonna make me mad and make me upset. I don't want that, so I I'll leave it alone. So for me to talk about my ancestry that is not black, not African, although I think black is more important than African, is for some people unnerving and disturbing because these are the slaveholders or these are the slaveholders people why would i ever want any association well i can't rip out of my genes and my blood mm-hmm. and I'll also i can separate the people who held black people in bondage and tortured them and exploited them from the people from whom they come mm-hmm. you know when i was a little boy i was in third grade mrs Philippines class and i can it's amazing i still remember her name and she would play for a, back when you didn't have to teach you the test. She would enrich our mornings with a classical composer every morning. Ooh. And she'd put the picture up and she'd play the play a little piece from them, particularly ones that were very common and very popular. And one morning she had Edward Grieg up. Mm-hmm. And she said, Edward Grieg is from Norway. And I immediately raised my hand and said, Mrs. Philip. And I said, I'm from Norway. I had barely just heard of Norway. <laughs> Then I went home and I told my parents that we're from Norway. My parents were like, nah. And then before my mom passed away, a blessed memory, I remember the ultimate shock I got when not one but two color wheel DNA tests talked about the Scandinavian portion of our bloodline. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, this makes perfect sense because... The Bellamy's and other families that we came from were Norman French. And there were people in also a lot of people in my bloodline from Yorkshire where the Vikings would set up shop among Mm, other places. And I just told my mom, I said, I don't know how I knew, but I knew. Mm -hmm. And for some people, that's not comfortable. That's not, that's not okay. That's just, I, I, you know, I remember there was this awful moment on Twitter where someone showed the picture of Eartha Kitt's granddaughter and Someone wrote something really unfortunate to the, to the effect of, if I'm your ancestor and you're my granddaughter, you look like that, don't call me. Oh, wow. And I said, there's a certain kind of ugliness to that. Mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to drop their jaw to the table and go, oh, Black racism. That's not, uh, that's not what that is. What that is, is people trying to grasp at any sort of grounding and power mm-hmm. that would help them feel like they get to call the shots. Right now, as we do these genetic tests, there are white folks who just deny and obfuscate the fact that they have thousands of black relatives. Every time I say English folks over here, I, I tell them, I said, you know, your biggest cousins are black. <laughs> through the Caribbean, through America, forget these white folks. I said, well, you're real relatives. And they don't know what to make of it. They think it's a joke. And I'm telling no, <laughs> this is serious ish. Uh-huh. Y'all have millions of Black relatives, but they never think of it that way. And maybe they should. You know, we talk a lot in this country about family values, and yet we have family that doesn't look like us all over the place, all over the globe. Yeah. You know, what part of this work for me, it's, you know, I guess I could say the cliche, the, the, the culinary cliche over and over again. We'll sit down at the same table, we'll eat, we'll break bread, we'll figure each other out, we'll figure it out. But here's a bigger thing for me, and that bigger thing is humanity. Mm-hmm. I do because of the social and historical conditions and cultural conditions to which I was born have a responsibility to my little bubble, my little black bubble. But I'm also intrigued by the way that going through this project, when I first started it, the reason why I started it because I started to forget names, places, people, and I didn't like that. 
I didn't like that feeling of, of, of things dripping away from me. And I was also aware that I had never been to certain places. You know, saying Alabama and having a picture pop up in your head is not the same as intimately knowing the country roads that led to the places where your ancestors were from. Yeah. To stand on the ground where they're buried, to stand on the ground where they walked, to stand on the ground, well, some somewhat walked, to stand on the ground where the plantations were, to stand on the ground where they pushed back against enslavement and became free people, to ride the routes they took to get to the Great Migration. You know, I had relatives who were in the Civil War. I had relatives who were tried to run away. I had relatives who passed for white. I had relatives who maintained knowledge of their African ethnic identity that got passed down to me. And unfortunately, none of that was in a neat, nice package. So when I was going to write about the food part, I want to tell the listeners that the food part was the easy part. Because mm-hmm. I knew that everybody had their hog meat and hoe cake, their, you know, meat meal and molasses, their their ration of salt pork, their ration of herring, their ration of cornmeal, and, that and that's that. And then, of course, the vegetables that grew around them. You know, one example I want to give you is that I had read the Virginia local colorist George Bagby for many years. Nobody knows who George Bagby is. He was kind of like the Mark Twain of Virginia. At any rate, George Bagby writes this incredibly rich set of passages in a book that was published after he died called The Virginia Gentleman. And The Virginia Gentleman is all about the old Virginia lifestyle, in particular that of the people whose great-grandparents were these fabulous colonial planters but saw their wealth get depleted as wealth shifted more to cotton, sugar, and rice. But they still lived in the same old houses and tried to maintain this air of, you know, being grandees. George Bagby writes all about this stuff. And then I come to realize through my research and through Tony, I have to give a huge shout out to Tony Carrier, who helped me translate all the different pieces into sound genealogical research. Without Tony, this would have been absolutely impossible. I didn't do this by myself. Through Tony's work and through my rummaging, I found out that George Bagby was actually a close friend of George Saunders, the man who held in bondage that part of my family. Because he lived in the same area, Buckingham County, Prince Edward County, Virginia, Amelia County, so that whole middle James River Valley. So when he's talking about the things growing in the garden of, of the enslaved, he could have been looking at the gardens that my own people had. And so then I felt less wary about making that connection and others. But I knew that the food part and the culinary history was easier than the genealogy because all those stories I told you about and a million more were just in mosaic form. It's like finding a little pretty part of a bigger picture that looks absolutely gorgeous in its tile form. But a lot of the other tiles are missing. So for me, one of the biggest projects has been the fact that once you get all this stuff dumped in your lap, you realize something. I don't know anything. <laughs> you know, Isn't that I, the I, deep adult you yes. know, waking up that we all get sooner or later? We all get that we have that moment. I don't know. Like, for example, I can study this over and over. I can watch a program and know exactly what they're going to say, what dates, what people, what reference, what stories. And I've read a billion books, but now I got to go back and read all of them because now something different inside of me. Mm-hmm. This, oh, wow. If I could, if I could only find one more detail, one more, one more trail, because I didn't, that depends on all the minutia of the history. You know, there's so much, I mean, I, after our Rona 
season of reflection is over, I really want to get back to giving professional genealogists a little bit more work because I have some amazing cans of worms haven't even opened. I, I have a, a, a pretty good authority. One of, one of my relatives that popped up through a DNA connection, I'm glad I recorded this before they shut it down, is in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. And I was like, on my South Carolina side, and I was like, okay, I know where this gets there. But I was just thinking to myself, if I could only find who they were and do that work, maybe I'm in the, maybe my people are in the Book of Negroes, that kind of information. So I guess, I guess where I'm coming at with this is that what you said about a different sort of research, different sort of work is so real. Because for many of us, it's like the parable of the blind man and the elephant. You know, one touching a leg, one touching a trunk, one touching a tail, swearing that it's all different, a different thing. It's actually the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that there are white folks out there who come from enslavers that are willing to share information means that for a lot of us who are on the other end, these are revolutionary discoveries that could happen if they would only share what they know. Because for us, um, a lot of courthouses were burnt down. Mm-hmm. A lot of places were destroyed, partly through aggression and war and also through just plain spite and pettiness, mm-hmm. which is why, you know, we wheel back to why it's so important for genetic testing companies to figure their stuff out and work together, why it's so important for them not to cut off information, because the collective effect of all this obfuscation and destruction is our American identity problem. Mm-hmm. Here's our struggles as African-Americans to find our footing in the world and give something to our children to, to, to hold on, to be proud of. And I know that there are people out there who are going, well, you know, I don't need all that. I don't need all that that far back. I'm happy with this. And, you know, that's just your thing. No, there is. I'm sorry, folks, but there is something that is earth shatteringly powerful about pulling together every coin you have, getting on that plane, setting down foot in Africa. And when the first thing that you hear when you walk towards that door to get off that plane is welcome home. And then everybody waves to you. Everybody hugs you. When we were in Sierra Leone, the first thing that happened to us once we got through our paperwork and our customs was the airport is located on an island off the coast of Freetown. And so the first thing that happened was the entire village there came out with drums and everything to welcome us. They heard that the long lost Mende and Tim, they had come back to Sierra Leone. And so we were being welcomed with drums all the way from the plane to the ferry to Freetown. Everybody came out and just started dancing and playing drums with us and and hugging us and welcoming us back home to Africa. It was incredible. And I've had that experience, as you well know, not once, Mm -hmm. but like a dozen times across eight different countries. Who doesn't need that spiritual replenishment? That's the thing that I don't understand. And I mean, I know, I know I am on the outside of this. I can't know how it feels. I can't know the need. All I know is intellectual. And all I can do is I can relate it to my feelings. I mean, this is a thin, tenuous version of it. But I can tell you that after my junior year of high school, we went to Ireland and it was the first time and a lot of other things. Okay. But right. my surname is Irish. And we went to see if we couldn't find some information out about the family. And we landed in Dublin 
And we had what I can only think of is the white Irish version of a Richard Pryor moment because we got (laughs) out of the plane. (laughs) We got out of the plane. And from the second that we were in the airport proper in the terminal to when we were in Dublin, we drove up to Belfast. We were in Belfast and Derry. We drove down to Galway and then we flew out again and again. I, as a lily white, blue-eyed, red-haired child. Okay, so I am 10%. I get that. But still, everybody else in the family is brown-haired. And we look like a lot of people in the United States, right? It was still different. There was something qualitatively, spiritually different about being in a place where we had a kinship. And everybody kind of look like us and we kind of look like them in a way that was more specific, was more precise. And if that's true for me, then how much more true is that for a group of people who are visibly in the minority in their daily lives? Right. And also in a place where, you know, you can, it's interesting when you go to West Africa, you'll see people who look like you. Mm -hmm. And then you'll see people look like people you grew up with. Ooh. And then you go back home, you see people you saw in Africa. It's really, it's really something. And then you see the, the range of colors and people and faces. And I got to tell you, for us, a lot of times, it was the African-Americans who got like the deep, some of the deepest looks. Because it was very, and it wasn't because there weren't people there who looked different or mixed or something. They definitely are there, but nobody pays interest in them mm-hmm. or white people. It's like, okay, yeah, they're different. They're odd. Uh, they're not the majority. But for us, it was that, I mean, people would just stare at you and try to figure out who your people were. Right. But on your, etched on your face are multiple different African ethnic groups. And then, so for example, my beard's not that common outside of Senegal and Gambia mm-hmm. and the way it looks and everything. But the fact that my hair looks the way it does, the fact that it's not, um, my body hair isn't tight and curly, Mm -hmm. long, it's more European. Mm -hmm. Kids would come up to me and hold my hand and look at my arms. Like, yeah, you're like us, but you're not quite like us. us." And even going to like, I don't know, Ireland and England. I had a weird moment, my my friend. (laughs) Of just like knowing that I was related to thousands of these people, mm-hmm. knowing that at some point I was probably on a London underground with, with 20 relatives and didn't know it. And just the power of that. What if they don't know? What if that's not part of their psyche? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's too bad. That's a, that's a shame. That's, that's, that's the situation. But like, dang, if I know it and it shapes me, then we're on to something here. Mm-hmm. It's not always about what my neighbor knows. It's about what could change me, how I could relate, how I could change, how I could be. And that to me, like, you know, the food then became the icing on the cake. It became just like, oh, this is, this is quite fun. Mm-hmm. But it's not the real story. The real story is that we're really super connected. I can't tell you how amazing it feels for me to talk with someone whose work and life I admire so much and to have him treat me like a peer. It's a natural high. I couldn't have enjoyed our discussion more, and I sincerely hope that you'll come back for part two. In the meantime, remember, do your research, 
Roots Tech is free, 100% online this year, and it starts February 25th. Don't be a Jeffrey, and above all, expect surprises. <laughs>